I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Life Through, episode 223. Dan Abella about his new book, The Theater of the Mind. Well, it's a fascinating book, and we had a fascinating conversation just a few hours ago, Dan Abella and I. We talked about Julian James, Marshall McLuhan, Gestalt Psychology, how ideas for inventions and music can come to us in our dreams, the power of the spoken word, the essence of what Samuel Taylor Coleridge called poetic faith, and how all of that, how art in general, can be a great treatment for all the stress that we've been suffering the past few years, and in fact, we're always suffering from some kind of stress. So I hope listening to this won't add to your stress. Instead, it'll add to your education and elucidation about this important topic. So here we go with the interview. The Light on Light Through podcast. Let's get started. First of all, Dan, it's great to see you again. The last time we saw each other was at the Philip K. Dick Film Festival that you organized. And I think that actually is a good springboard to talk about your book, Theater of the Mind. That's right. That's that's correct. Yes, we met uh, five years ago, as a matter of fact, at the Philip K. Dick Festival. How time flies. This is amazing, really. That was a wonderful uh, event that we all shared. I was just thinking about that the other days, you know. Um, yes, uh, well, you know, um, the, the, the origin of the Theater of the Mind uh, which is... Well, let me just backtrack a little bit. I'm basically during the day, I, I, I work with some clients who have come to me over the past 25 years dealing with a, vari- a variety of challenges from PTSD to anxiety. That's my day job, so you speak. So uh, I also do yearly festivals um, as a kind of um, a way to keep my other interests active and, and interacting. And during, so in the past 25 years, I found during my interest in both therapy and, and, and counseling and coaching and film that there are certain commonalities between the two. And this is something that I haven't seen really written or talked about much in, in, in other sources. Um, so uh, I basically started when I went to the university, went to Columbia back in the early 80s. I uh, got my degree in, chem- in biochemistry, biophysics actually, and uh, but at the same time, during that period, I really got very much interested in the the study of the mind, and I I uh, studied Freud, Adler, Carl Jung, and I became very interested about how the mind works. Um, and uh, shortly after leaving school, I I went to the West Coast, and I uh, worked for a biotech company for a couple of years. And that's when biotech was big. Uh, that was the first tech wave. Yes. It's still big. It never got small. It's still big. Yes, yes. And uh, I, um, I, I went there, but I realized shortly after working in a laboratory that I was basically just a glorified lab technician. And uh, there, really no, there was very little room for real thinking and, 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 and experimentation. It's just like, take this, mix, mix it with this. 
So I decided after two years to return back to New York where I worked for about 10 years in Wall Street helping people build the financial models, uh, trading models. So I used my knowledge in, of physics was to build some of these models. Uh, how to, you know, how to know when a stock is going to go up or down or, or futures or commodities and so on. And during that, at some time around the early 90s, I ran to some friends of mine whom I had actually gone to school with, uh, high school with, and actually they had gone to the, uh, gone and served in, as officers, and others, many of them had unusual symptoms. They, they, were t they were complaining about restlessness, insomnia, uh, trigger events, uh, anger, outbursts, blackouts, and so on. So eventually I came to realize these were all basically symptoms of uh, PTSD or a variation of that. And I became uh, frustrated because at that time there weren't too many treatments for PTSD that were quick and effective. Uh, many of the treatments were still the ones used today, which are, uh, one of them is exposure therapy, where the patient or client gets exposed to a, a, a trauma of, of some sort, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, and, and on a really small scale. And the idea is to desensitize people to the original trauma experience. Um, unfortunately, the problem with exposure therapy is about 30% of the people who go for it, who are vets, never come back. Because it, if, you've been, if someone has been traumatized, the last thing they want to do is go back to anything that's going to re-trigger that event. Let, let me just uh, say one thing. That's actually, though, the time-honored way of treating allergies, physical allergies. All right. So, so if you have hay fever, they'll, they'll expose you to a small amount of whatever it is, the ragweed pollen, and your body then would get used to it. So that's probably where that arose. But, but go ahead. Right. And I have uh, later on, I will mention a little, uh, like also a parallel to how to deal with uh, allergies from my training. So... Yes, hey, um, so uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is the other approach, which is essentially talk therapy, where you try to challenge the underlying beliefs uh, uh, or uh, that, the, that the client might have about his original trauma. Unfortunately, both of these treatments really deal, essentially, they're neocortical treatments, deal with the top part of the evolutionary chain, the part of, the, of the, our brain that's, they, where the problem is, is in the midbrain, that's in the amygdala, and, and uh, hippocampus arc. And uh, so clearly these treatments were, aren't really that effective. They're only effective about 30, 40% of the time. The rest is, uh, they're not. So uh, the result is uh, heavy dependence on big pharma, heavy dependence on self-medication and, and all sorts of uh, alternatives don't really work very well. So I became very frustrated that that, uh, that wasn't taste. So I decided to uh, start really focusing more on looking for models of the mind that attempt to describe uh, these conditions not as things, but as mental processes that we can actively intervene on. You see, a lot of people think of depression or PTSD as a thing, as a, as a, like this, like this bottle of water. But what we learned early on is that these are mental processes and uh, specific sequences that one following the other. They happen so quickly uh, that it gives the impression that it's a thing. Very much like you're watching television, there's a bunch of pixels in front of you. And, and the speed uh, and the transmission uh, basically gives this idea that there is something moving. 
So uh, let me just say, and that, that actually, of course, the, the notion that what you're talking about is a process, and you go into this in your book, is, is, is the foundation of Gestalt psychology. And, and you talk about the work of Pearls uh, and others. And um, w one of the things that very much interested me in your book is how you bring in, and you just mentioned watching television, you bring in everyone from Marshall McLuhan to, to right. Pearls to Sigmund Freud uh, into your uh, assessment. And, and, and that, in effect, is the bridge from your appreciation of Philip K. Dick and, and the science fiction that that represents and the mind expansion, the bridge from that to actually coming up with a way of helping people with PTSD and those kinds of problems. Exactly. So one of the things I, uh, I uh, noticed is that in the 1977, when there was a film called Jaws came out, uh, that was one of the first blockbusters by Spielberg and in general, so it made over a hundred million dollars of the backhoe. Many people reported feeling uh, afterwards being afraid of going to the water. They were deadly afraid of, the, of swimming. So it always struck me as very odd because after all, it's just a movie. I can understand when you're watching the movie feeling a little bit emotional, but afterwards still having that, as in this is really odd. So that kind of stuck with me for some time is that uh, the power of movies you know, to impact us, not immediately, but over time. And, um, and uh, so in 9-11, we have also had a, a, another example of that. Well, a lot of people who were reported having PTSD, reported having it from thousands of miles away from the original site of the, act, of the incident. I can understand if you're in New York City, but you're just at home in Georgia or maybe in California just watching these images flash on on uh, on the screen and then shortly they have PTSD that suggests that the mechanism that the, the audiovisual mechanism that exists that in impacts creates PTSD through watching must be have a similar nature to the same mechanism that we experience as we're interacting with real life traumatic experiences. They're both essentially very, uh, almost like uh, re isomorphically related. They're almost like very similar. And so I started to explore that. And well, I thought- Let me just say this, uh, I just want to get in here a very famous poet, I'm sure you've heard of him, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Right. Uh, he wrote a book a long time ago, back in maybe the 1820s, uh, and he, uh, he was interested in why people respond to poetry. And he said the essence of the poetic experience is a willing suspension of disbelief. You, mm. uh, you know rationally that what you're reading is fiction. It's not actually happening, but you have a full-bodied emotional reaction, which is precisely what happens in terms of what you're talking about, in terms of why would somebody be so emotionally affected by a movie long after they've seen the movie. I mean, you know, we might cry, you know, when we see a movie, but we're affected afterwards. By the way, as far as September 11th, I remember being sort of surprised. At one point, a few years afterwards, I was talking to someone in Philadelphia, and, and and that person said exactly what you are just saying to me. I was saying to that person, you know, as a New Yorker, uh, you know, I, I've been viscerally affected by September 11th. And the person I was talking to said, well, 
I live in Philadelphia. I was nowhere near ground zero. It's not my city, but I was affected the same way, which supports what you are saying. Yes, I mean, there is a lot of people were, and there was a, uh, a study, which I include in the book, that um, correlates a higher number of PTSD with actually watching television. The number of hours that people were spending in front of the t watching those towers fall again and again. And watch it once or twice, but essentially it became a loop. Very much, very similar to like when someone is listening to a song. Um, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, they're hearing that song again, out of nowhere. Popped out, and it's like, what just happened here? And it's sometimes a goofy song, too. <laughs> it's not even a beautiful song, it might be, but sometimes it's like the goofy, and I say, why am I repeating this song in my head? So basically, the brain is like a perfect recording device. And sometimes they'll pick up things that you don't expect to record, but it's still recording all the time. Well, and, let me just say, uh, I've been talking a lot and writing about, and you, you, I would highly recommend it to you if you haven't seen it, Peter Jackson's three-part, uh, almost eight-hour documentary, The Beatles Get Back, in right. which it takes footage and sound that was recorded in January 1969, and, and he applies his cinematic magic to it so that the sound quality and the visual quality is so realistic and I tell people, and they think I'm exaggerating, watching that documentary has literally changed my life. I feel like a missing piece of my life, because I've loved the Beatles since I was a kid, has come back to me. And this is what you're indeed, I think, alluding to when you say music has that effect on you. It, it's internalized and it becomes part of you. Absolutely. And it's, it's very funny you mentioned music, because uh, just last night, I was I, I I was having a dream, uh, and uh, many 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 years ago when I, I was I used to be in a band I used to you know I used to make music compose and I started composing this music this song in my in my dream, and it's happened a few times in the past I never but I sort of always most of the time I stayed uh, I felt I slept through it this time I woke up. I woke up and I woke, and it's a, and I I find that it's a great I even recorded it and it's a great song and I'm trying to remember whether this is a song I remember hearing years ago or it's a, an original song, but I remember hearing about how uh, Paul McCartney, even John Lennon, that a lot of their practices were accessing states, non-ordinary states of consciousness, whether asleep or otherwise, to get that. For instance, yeah. Paul. Let me just tell you one thing about Paul McCartney. I always tell people. First of all, I came out with an album, Twice Upon a Rhyme, back in 1972. And I, I was writing a lot of songs in the late 60s, early 70s. So back in the late 60s, my girlfriend, Tina, who I later married and we're still married and we have two kids and grandkids and, and all that good stuff. But I started writing a song for her. It just began with hiding behind a raindrop and uh, shyly opening her sweet milk chocolate eyes. And I, I just really had a couple of lines. And then you know how it is with songwriting. I just didn't know where to go with it. So one day I was on a bus in Manhattan and I, I half fell asleep. I was half dreaming, half daydreaming. And it, I, this is exactly what you're talking about. In this half daydream, half dream, Paul McCartney comes up to me 
I says, hey, man, you know, uh, I, I hear you're writing a new song. I said, yeah, and I'm sort of stuck, you know, hiding behind a raindrop. What would be like a good line for the next verse? And he said, hey, what's the matter with you? Hiding behind the same drop. It rhymes with raindrop. There you go. So Paul McCartney, in my dream, gave me the, the, that line. I finally recorded that song back in 2019, and it's, it's on a new album called Welcome Up, Songs of Space and Time. But th that's indeed the way our unconscious works out. Uh, it, it works yeah. and, you, and you might ask, why couldn't I have just come up with it myself? I had to have a dream of Paul McCartney giving me that next line. Yes, well, that's really, um, that's right. He's, he's there to help you as a guide. As a, and that's, you know, that's often what, I think a lot of, a lot of creative people, when they, you ask them how did they arrive at certain things, they, uh, they won't necessarily give you the step-by-step the -step, uh, manual, but often it's things like this, like through a dream work, like Edison, would fall asleep or uh, and then uh, he would have in fact i think there's a statue in new jersey we see him holding something like a, and that was an indication that we fell asleep that was a signal that he would fall asleep and he could access some information from his unconscious to retrieve it and uh so yes it, it's really all related to how we uh to our right brain and how we process memory and poetry it's all really connected and uh, so what my goal in the book is to establish more an interdisciplinary connection between the various disciplines that we accept as separate, but in fact, they're very much part of the a larger body. Uh, I remember reading uh, Julian Jaynes, the breakdown of bicameral mind, and you already know, and now some of his ideas have been challenged. But the one thing that's stuck with me in those early chapters, when he talked about the power of the metaphor, and how the more abstract types of metaphors are often uh, built upon physical things we do in everyday life. But now, uh, the, the idea of how a metaphor figures into the theater of the mind is this, that uh, throughout most of history, there's been this, or this oral tradition. And then at some point, uh, a lot of uh, oral, maybe text, but at some point around the Middle Ages, late or early Renaissance, you have the Gutenberg, the, the create, and then books were the rave. At that point, we took a book. At that point, let me see if I can find one over here. That meant uh, like the virtual reality of the age was this: was the book. So people could read that book and they pull in into a whole universe. And I remember reading how uh, when Goethe uh, wrote uh, the Sorrows of Young Werther. Uh, many young people at that time committed suicide over supposedly the, the heartbreaking conclusion. And it struck me, this is amazing because you would, you'd be hard-pressed to have any book today, anyone with that kind of impact. But today, what we're seeing are more visual images, fast, like what the type of images you might find in Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube and so on. So it struck me that each age carries a certain... Uh, a universal metaphor through which communication takes place. Uh, the book might have been the the, the, our, the virtual reality of its age. Uh, early 20th century motion pictures, such as the uh, the Great Train Robbery, where you have, I think, one of the uh, Edison's first films. You have a, a train heading towards the audience. You see, and everybody was so uh, like shocked that they actually left the theater running. 
So it struck me, this is how we're really building uh, through a, co a symbiotic relationship between what's going on internally in our mind and what's happening in the world. Uh, when you had the, uh, the, uh, the, the War of the Worlds with uh, Orson Welles, again, radio was a very powerful medium at that time. Uh, so what I argue in the book is that right now we, we have a, a, a essentially the metaphor. I want to be very clear about this. It's a metaphor. This is not like we have a little homunculus inside our head uh, watching things. Just a metaphor for how we process memories um, and process information. For instance, the uh, if you were to show Jaws, the movie Jaws, to someone who has never been exposed to film, who doesn't understand cinematic grammar, uh, he might not respond the same way. Uh, he might not get any emotional reaction uh, versus someone who is being immersed in that field. And consequently, the very same mechanism that enables us to understand cinematic grammar is also a mechanism that allows us to uh, it be impacted, whether it be positive or negative, by an experience, whether it be uh, the 9-11 or watching a film such as um, Jaws. Jaws. And, that's an and so what is that mechanism? So I started doing more research and there was a little well-known technique from a group that had been developed back in the as early as the late 70s, early 80s, which dealt with uh, how to deal with this mechanism. And it's, it's, it goes under different terms. One of them is the rewind technique. The other one is the VKD dissociation, where essentially you step in a movie theater. And you're watching yourself from the projection, watch yourself, watch a movie. And that movie happens to be the movie of your life or that drama or that traumatic experience. Through watching yourself watch that movie, you're able to disassociate from the experience and then you rewind the film backwards, very much like a Charlie Chaplin film, very quickly. So the end result of this series of sequences is that the trauma of the original experience, the emotional charge, gets attenuated by 50 to 80 percent. Now, when I first heard learned about this technique, I didn't believe it. I thought this this got to be made up. I mean, I, I can't believe that you just do something as simple as that, and someone. And but not when I started actually using it with many of my clients, people who had say a phobia of swimming in the water, or who had survived the Sarajevo bombing, or who had a uh, waking up at two in the morning from a, a a traumatic episode. I realized the power of that. Now. My, this is where I decided to write the book. My question is, this technique has been around for ages, literally. It's not something that I developed. It's, it came out late. How is it that more people don't know about it? How is it that we really are not using it as on the same level as exposure therapy or cognitive? And it struck me is that it's part of our human... Uh, it's part of our human condition is to understand why it works. Like Just like it took me many years before I even bothered to try that technique. So I started looking for an overarching framework that would explain how that technique works. And the framework is the theater of the mind, which is that essentially the, the, the existing metaphor we use to process memories is as if we have, as if we have a kind of a movie theater inside our head where memories are stored and they're retrieved and moved according to um, 
the uh, our wishes. Take the movie Inception. You're, you're familiar with that film. Yep. Uh, I got very excited when I first came out because here's a movie that indirectly uh, tells us about the architecture of the mind. And people might think, well, that's just science fiction, but it's not really science fiction. If you look at case histories of people who had pr powerful memories, such as, say, Nikola Tesla, who was able to build an engine inside his head, or Napoleon, who once was asked, well, Emperor, how do you remember such fine details of all your military campaigns? And he, he replied, he says, well, inside my head, I got a file cabinet. And file my cabinet, I got drawers. I got a drawer, then I have files. I pull the file that I need. I look at it. I pull it back. I put it back. I close the drawer. That, and people will think, come on, that's just a, just a metaphor. No, that's how he had built. The metaphor of the age was files, cabinets. That's how they thought. So he had let essentially. Me, let me just say that's that's a good metaphor. In my case, though, I would pull the file out and probably not put it back. I'd leave it someplace and lose it. So, <laughs> right. So the the reason that Tesla was such a successful inventor is he know knew how to organize things. Let me just throw a couple of things in here, though. Uh, that our listeners and viewers might find of interest in no particular order of importance because everything that you said was extremely important. But first of all, as far as Julian James is concerned, uh, I have a couple of things to mention about him. One, the television series Westworld. At some point early on in the series when they were trying to describe what the, the android consciousness that they had created it's a form of AI was, they actually cite Julian James's book, Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. They don't really apply him in a direct way. They just sort of throw that out there. But what else do you hear, like on a television series, somebody citing James? So, so good for that. Let me also mention, I once had a conversation with Marshall McLuhan, who I knew personally about Julian James. I knew Julian James also. And I asked McLuhan, well, what do you think of Julian James? McLuhan answered, it's science fiction. So <laughs> this, there you okay, have it. There you go. And this comes from McLuhan, who basically people thought he was even crazier than science fiction. But, but it just goes to show you the most creative people are sometimes not understanding of other creative people. Let me right. also mention a very good book that I read years ago. And I don't know if you've come across it. I don't think it was in your book. I can't quite even remember the name of it, but it, it was published way back in 1915, but, and it was written by a Columbia University professor, Hugo Munsterberg, and it was a book, I think it may have just been called Film, and the, the book uh, was a, ostensibly a philosophic analysis of what goes on when we perceive motion pictures, but it's very much along the path that you have been I investigating. Uh, and so, you know, wor worth your while uh, l looking at that. But get back to what you were saying. I just wanted to make sure I got those things. Well, that, that's an injury. I definitely would like to name, like to uh, when you get a chance, send me the link with that. Because right. that's, yeah, I mean, the the uh, when I started putting these pieces together, and a lot had to do because of my fascination with science fiction, PKD, and all on, is that it made more sense. It said, oh my God, this is really what's this is how this is. Bits and pieces, like when I read or, or, uh, the breakdown of the camera, by camera, it just that stuck metaphor stuck with me. 
And I said, so, and I didn't say, well, I'm going to put it in my book. And I said, no, there's something about this that really resonates. And then later, Inception. And then later, um, Charles. And I started putting the pieces together as I began writing the book. And lastly, when I came up with the idea, the idea that the medium is the message with uh, McLuhan's uh, famous uh, quote, is that right now the medium is the metaphor, is the metaphor. So we got to look at the medium through which we organize reality. And they, for most people, and I'm not, there are some people who might not, this may not necessarily apply to, but many of them right now, the medium is right now a highly processed visual medium. The power of the word of, of sound uh, is it, secondary. It takes a back seat. It's still important, but it's take, it takes a back seat. But the visual medium, whether the one we're in right now or movies or Snapchat, it's through which how we people interact. And that invariably affects the neurology, the neurological uh, organization of our experience. It makes easier for people to understand the theater of the mind. That if you just want to, if you have a bad memory, let's say something that you want to, or maybe an unpleasant memory, not necessarily bad, you can just start going inside, you could go inside your own mind and and take that film and run it backwards. Like you say, okay, or edit it or start doing all sorts of things. Now, that might sound like science fiction to some who is not hearing it for the first time, but I invite anybody to actually do it themselves and see what happens. I'll give you an example. Advertisers have known this all for years. They'll present foods that are very compelling, very exciting, and right up in front, big images. Say, think of your favorite food right now, I'll say. Think of that. And your mind's eye want you to pull that image and really bring it up close and personal. So almost it's so big that you're almost looking up at that. That creates a different emotional reaction than taking that same food and move it all the way past into the horizon, making it tiny and small. So with the theater, yeah. No, I was just going to say, uh, you're absolutely right. And I did. I wanted to also mention about metaphor and also uh, the acoustic dimension. Uh, first of all, as far as metaphor is concerned, McLuhan thought metaphor was the most powerful way to understand. And, uh, you know, he, he actually, he, he was logical, but he didn't enjoy logic. He enjoyed making these metaphoric connections. And, uh, you know, people got frustrated with him because when he said, you know, it, back in the 1960s, you know, the world has turned into a global village, people would say, what are you talking about? I don't see a village worldwide, right. one village. But he, he was talking metaphorically. He was even looking into the future, predicting, in effect, the Internet. And um, he also, McLuhan, was very fond of citing, I think it was Robert Browning, uh, a slightly sexist quote. We can change it. Browning's original quote was, a man's reach must exceed his grasp, or what's a metaphor? Mm. So, you know, a, a, a sort of a clever play on words. Um, so we can say a person's reach must exceed one's grasp or whatever. But, but metaphors and what McLuhan called acoustic space are, are very, very profound. And uh, in terms of what you were just talking about, even though we talk a lot about the visual because it's right out there all the time, McLuhan thought, and I agree, that what truly moves us more than the visual 
is the acoustic. And you know, there's, and you would appreciate this as a, an effect or a psychologist, that's how you're approaching this. One of the things about uh, sound is it causes our uh, ear, the, our, our inner ears, you know, the membranes in our ears to literally vibrate. So there's a physical, you know, change in our body. And that, you know, the, the eardrum basically uh, causes, excites the, the auditory nerve. The visual is something else. Yes, light comes into our eyes, but nothing literally vibrates with light. So right there and then you have a, a much more superficial kind of input, even though uh, uh, light is important. Exactly. No, I agree. Uh, uh, the, uh, in fact, the Hindus recognize that with some of their chants, for instance, the fame, the Aum, if you actually looked at it on an oscilloscope, essentially a sine wave. And uh, part of our uh, training is to create more rounded syllables as we speak, because if you want to induce trance or more relaxed states of consciousness, more right brain states of consciousness, the key is to create a sound signature from as you speak to someone that is more rounded, visually more rounded in nature. And yes, I mean... Uh, Richard Bandler, I like. I usually like to quote. He's, he's been saying that we always bathing people in sound waves, and they're very impactful. And that's why, for instance, some people with lower pitch tend to, and say in Hollywood, tend to someone like Sean Connery or James Earl Jones, and very powerful low voices, and they under respect. You wonder how is that? A lot has to do with acoustics. It has to do with the, the uh, that it hits your, hits us right here in the chest. It's not just in our head. And visuals are cool, and it's very, but it's very much head-based uh, consciousness. Whereas sound waves are uh, hits us here and in the bottom. And and uh, sadly enough, I, I'm for, I think the way so far a lot of our technology is going is the focus is a lot more on visuals. But yes, the auditory. Uh, the, the acoustics are, are critical in any communication. Um, it's not so much what you say, but how you say it and, and, and the quality of the tonality of people use, not so much the, the content. The content is important, but the tonality. People, I often have people that have very shrilly tonality or very, and they, they complain to me that people don't respect them or they can't communicate. And I say, well, sometimes you gotta change your voice a little bit. And they say, change my voice. So yeah. It, yeah. It, it, it's a, the whole thing kind of fits together in a, in a kind of a, a way that I find very, very satisfying. Um, there, I've been reading the work of uh, this philosopher, quote, sci scientist, name is Ian, um, Mac, Ian Gilchrist, or Matt Gilchrist. He wrote a book called The Master and His Emissary. He's like the modern day jo Julian Jaynes. Um, he's kind of revisiting the whole right brain, left brain, because it's, it was kind of um, discredited or at least popularized and put into this kind of new new age uh, way. Of, but he's actually, with a book that has over 5,000 citations, proves that there is a distinct uh, difference between how the right and left brain approach reality. And in, a, in concordance with Julian Jaynes, the emissary is the more recent nascent sort of a creation of, of our brain. I mean, but it's taken over. 
So the, and the emissary doesn't care about music or about art or about poetry. It's all about ordering lists and 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 sure enough, it kind of that kind of corresponds to the way a lot of the current technology is going. Uh, Let me just say, and and poetry, by the way, obviously we read poetry, but poetry began as a profoundly acoustic medium. Uh, it's the way people were able to remember, you, you know, you might wonder. You hear about the Iliad and the Odyssey, and we know historically they existed before they were written down for hundreds of years, maybe even longer. Uh, and and but how then were they passed down from generation to generation? The answer is they were recited as oral sagas. And if you think about rhyming, rhyming, right. I always think of rhyming as the Velcro of the mind. Because when words rhyme, they stick together and make it makes them easier to, to remember. So so right there you have there's a fundamental quality of the acoustic. By the way, I did want to mention something else, you know, to give uh, credit to the proper filmmaker. You were talking about the train enters the station. That and and people when they saw that it was a silent movie, there was no sound, the train comes in, they go running out of the theater screeching. That actually was made a little before Edison. It was made by oh. the Lumiere brothers oh, in yeah, Paris, okay. France, right? It was a silent movie. However, Edison knew about that, and he, he did take that into consideration when he asked Edwin Porter to basically produce the movie that became The Great Train Robbery. Uh, th that movie is very significant because it was one of the first times where a scene was spliced in to the movie because it, 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 there was like a fight on top of the the train and they wanted to have a close-up of it and they wanted to show a guy pulling a gun and uh porter came up with the idea why don't we just have like a single you know shot of the gun a big gun pointing in the midst of that action all of his assistants said no the public won't accept that what are you talking about you can't just stick a gun in, in the middle of a and, and but Porter said well let's give it a chance and what the human mind did is it accepted that close-up in the midst of that, you know, uh, people fighting on top of the train, because that's what the mind does. It sews images together in its own way. And that, in turn, Sergei Eisenstein was aware of that, and that's how montage was developed. Right, and, 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 that's, and that's the key, uh, that there's an in, a participatory experience with reality, with books, with movies which is quantum mechanics is telling us essentially the same thing about the nature of reality. It's not a, you know, objective reality that is solid, that it's not, but it's, it's a, particip a participatory reality. And that's what the mystics, Yates, that's what the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the, the saints have been talking about, that there is a quality to the human mind that if, if cultivated, and it's not something you're going to do overnight, but if cultivated over time, it, it, it reaps an unbelievable richness an unbelievable sense of uh, of, of vastness of experience, whether uh, St. Teresa of, uh, of Avila, who talked about reaching God by existing, by going inside her, a castle. And each castle has these different rooms and mansions and through her, and this is essentially a mystic journey that using the castle, which was a, a, a metaphor for that period. I mean, there were plenty of castles and, not some today you would not be very castles doesn't have that same kind of resonance but at that time it meant it really meant something and enabled her to access 
through participating in that reality and the metaphors higher states of consciousness just like um, the, uh, the, the tree of life uh, in the Kabbalist mystic Jewish tradition where you're pulling essential so there there or the Hindu um, uh, the, uh, the Tibetan tantrics or the Tibetan Buddhists uh, so they're each essentially they're different models that were that engage the capacity of our mind to create an internal reality and co-create it with the external world it's like we're this is a shared reality it's not like we're the world is outside objective and the internal world is just this passive receptacle and this is what a lot of traditions have been telling us whether it be the poets or the mystics or the, even the scientists are saying that we live in more of a participatory John Wheeler the famous quantum mechanics he talked about that extensively and uh, that's something to take uh, keep in mind because then it enables us, it opens up a door inside our own mind that, that where we can begin to uh, be part, play in that world that has been given to us, essentially, as our birthright. Uh, I think a lot of people in th this day and age, though, are, it, it's just too easy to fall into this passive relationship with media or with the world where we have nothing and the world's, and, and it's not, it's an incomplete. Uh, very much like what's happening today, we're seeing a, a world kind of trauma. And a lot of the irrationality that, that is, is being blamed on ideological differences, I believe it has to do with traumatic challenges that people are dealing with. And that's why they're armoring, using the uh, term from Ivelam Reich, they, they're armoring themselves. And they say, no, you're wrong and I'm right and, and let's fight. And I think there's some serious trauma uh, I had a conversation with uh, with Diane Hennessy Powell, who is an MD psychiatrist, and John Hopkins, and she said that she probably believes the U.S. May, there may be like 30% of the population has is suffering some 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 sort of trauma or uh, PTSD or some serious challenge that many of them will, on their own, will recover, but some will not. And so I felt okay, given all this, right during the lockdown. I wrote the book, The Theater of the Mind. Uh, this, I mean, I've been thinking about writing a book for years, and it's not easy writing anything for me. It's just like sit down and put it into words, and then the editing, which took almost as long as writing the book, <laughs> if not longer. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's insane, but I think it's good to have something because it's, um, it's a good way of putting into into physicality these these ideas these concepts which i feel are very relevant now this is one thing i want to i also bring up in the book is that most people agree today that the kind of entertainment that it's out there is out there very vapid kind of like clueless or negative just very negative but that it's not necessarily been the case back in ancient greece there were plays that were enacted and they were specifically de de dealt for healing. And uh, one thing I noticed when I first uh, did a uh, had a play called uh, Timothy X's uh, Journey from PTSD to Health uh, Wellness. I did this at the first psychedelic festival in 2018, which I put. I noticed that afterwards people came to me, and they and they said, "Well, I don't know exactly what about the play, but I, I feel you know things have gone a little bit better." So and you know I got keep getting all these emails. Basically, the plays have, where I essentially recreate the 
process that I've been talking about, the theater of the mind, with a, uh, a young man who, who is suffering from flashbacks and blackouts and so on. And it's just, that's, that's the play, right? PTSD. So I figured that my, what the mechanism that might be going on is that as I'm doing the technique with him, that whoever is identifying with him is actually running that technique in their own mind. So it's through kind of an indirect association. So just like when we watch a great film and sometimes we end up feeling sad or angry or sorry or exhilarated by what by the actor, by identification with the actor, we identify with a certain part of ourselves. And that very part will go on the same journey as the actor in the movie to some degree or another. Now, if that journey correlates with a very specific therapeutic intervention, then we also experience that journey to a certain degree. And at least that was my explanation. So I feel that it's a, it's a good one way to deal with this challenge on a global scale is for uh, is to have films that have therapy, really built in, ther- not feel good films. The, the difference between feel good is by very specific therapeutic interventions that can make us, that can give us access to, to our potential. Not just, okay, here, you feel good, and I'm gonna sell you this product, which is essentially what most films are. Or feel good about, uh, about something that, but something that triggers in ourselves something that we really can say, yes, you know, I feel that there is a way around, there, there is a way out of this issue. You know, and, and that's what I'm hoping that some technology companies will recognize rather than just like like some of them we know of they t- treat us like ciphers and it's about likes and and so on and and i really don't support that because uh, we're more than just a cipher we're more as quoting uh uh <clears throat> this prisoner more I'm not, I'm not a number i am not a number and that number six but we're essentially we are a pixel we're not even a number now we're just a pixel and and we got to we got to fight that. We got to really, by, the way we do so by empowering our own mind. Nothing can fight a free mind. That's, that's unstoppable. Yeah, I, may- I, agree, I agree with you completely. Let me just say, by the way, you know, I, I've thought about this for a while. You said you wrote this book during the lockdown. In effect, the same thing that really exacerbated this global trauma, because I think you're completely right. You know, we're, we're all suffering from some kind of trauma. How could we not? If you're any kind of sane, rational human being, you can't go out in the world anymore without worrying. You know, right. if you see somebody's not wearing a mask, if somebody coughs in your presence, it's crazy. I mean, again, I think we need to get vaccinated. We need to get boosted. I mean, that's just science and rationality. But even that's not 100% effective. Nothing's 100% effective. So, I mean, you have to think twice about all the normal things that we've been doing throughout our lives outside. That's definitely caused an increase in trauma. But interestingly, I and mean, this is fascinating in a sort of biographical way relating to authors and creators, it gave you the opportunity to write this book. And I've, been, I've had a very creative couple of years as well. So, you know, had I uh, control over the world, uh, I would still rather we didn't have the pandemic and I would have written the books, whatever I wrote, 
anyway, sooner or later. But there's no doubt that, that I, ironically, some good came out of this. Let me um, just uh, uh, mention to our uh, listeners and viewers, I'm going to have links uh, in the show notes, uh, both to some of these thing, uh, books that we've discussed, Julian James's book, um, at least one of Marshall McLuhan's book, Hugo Munsterberger's book, which I'll send you uh, a URL to as well. I also, of course, want to have a link to where people can buy your book. Is it available on Amazon at this point? And uh, uh, Yes, it's available on Amazon. Uh, people can also go directly to my website and uh, uh, they can actually, I think they'll get like five, six dollars off um, in, the, in the website. I think you'll, you'll mention it. I will. Uh, it's the NLP one. Um, and yes, that, that is the best way. Uh, they can also get it through Amazon. You can type in theater, the theater of the mind, because there are many theaters of the mind out right. there so, uh, with my name, and it, it should come up. Good. Listen, uh, this was a great conversation. Uh, I had no idea. I mean, look, I knew when we met that you know no one would have organized the Philip K. Dick Film Festival if they didn't have a certain amount of depth and understanding. Yeah. But uh, th there are few professors and uh, you know recognized scholars on the face of this earth that have as much understanding of McLuhan and James and all the things that you've been talking about. So uh, one of the reasons I'm really glad we did this is, uh, and one of the reasons why I do do this is this will become, this interview will become part of my curriculum when I teach these things in the future. Uh, so, uh, you know, I want to thank you. And any final words from you on? on you know, uh, I think that there is, uh, you know, there is basically, I, I always like to end with, with, with a saying from, from Jesus, who's the, the, which a lot of people just regard him as a master, a great teacher, but the kingdom is inside of us, inside of each one of us. And, and, and really, we need to look inwards for, uh, and, and we'll find solutions and we'll find ways to deal with that. All the great teachers, whether Buddha, Lao Tzu, Jesus, they all talk about the same thing. And it's about opening your up, opening up the mind to its uh, to its abilities, just like the dream, last night's dream, and your your dream with Paul McCartney. It's the same thing. There there is something waiting on the other side that is yearning to come out and share its bounty, share its it, it's with, with us. So we just gotta be open and receptive, and and I think we'll be all the all the more happier and more fulfilled moving forward. I agree with you completely. I realized a long time ago when there are things in the world that you are not happy with, things that you don't like, the only thing that you have any real control over is you. So you're right. If you can improve the way you are, you can not only help yourself, but even help the world. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. And, and, um, Hope to, uh, you know, maybe one day we'll see again, see ourselves at the next PKD festival. As long as it's still alive, like a real physical event, hopefully. I'll, that be, will happen. There. I'll be there for sure. <laughs> Take care, Dan. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan Abella. As I mentioned in the interview, if you're interested in getting a copy of The Theater of the Mind, there'll be links 
to that book in the show notes of this podcast, as well as links to some of the other books that we discussed in the conversation you just heard. And coming up very soon, there'll be another interview, an interview I actually conducted with Rufus Sewell about the man in the high castle and some of the other great movies he has starred in. Actually, The Man in the High Castle, of course, is a television series, not a movie, but you get what I'm talking about. Anyway, I conducted that interview this past July. The video has been up on YouTube since then, getting a ton of views, but I know that if you want to really give something its widest possible distribution so people can listen to it anytime, anywhere, there's nothing like an audio podcast. So, I'll be putting up in just a few hours the complete unedited interview that I did with Rufus Sewell as the next episode of Light On, Light Through. And I know I owe you reviews of Dexter, New Blood. There is going to be a review of The Invasion, what I hope is the season one finale. I'll have that for you in just a couple of days. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and enjoy. AD. She ripped the paper in half, then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left again into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson still code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.